Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the J3U Podcast. I'm your host, John Jewett, and with me is co-host Luke Miller. And today, we have a great episode talking about the post-contest period, not just focusing on just gender specific females because this will apply to males as well but a little bit more focus for the for the ladies today and with me to talk about these topics is dr eric helms which is a returning guest and also lauren conlin who is a new guest to us as her master of exercise science and is an ifbb bikini pro so let's have some well-versed educated folks in this topic and we're gonna we're gonna dive in and so i think uh well how are y'all anyway before i just start talking keep going <laughs> great everything's new year new year new me right just oh there uh, you but- go <laughs> <laughs> i need to say we're done with the podcast that's it <laughs> yeah i committed to starting lifting weights regularly so well, welcome back I'm, uh yeah it, it, it's good I, I make it always from about january to february each year and uh, i'm just impressed with what i've been able to achieve with two months out of each year so yeah you can just detrain the rest of the time gain it all back and then and, and surpass it <laughs> that's right it's the strategic deloading called uh 10 months of depression which which i i, I would mark it in my new ebook so yeah what well, oh eric i've uh i've been on prep like all year so this new year mm. new me literally is kind of a new me of me with more body fat on my face and, and all around so it's uh it's been fresh in my mind for like post-show and and also struggling with like coaching a lot of clients especially in the post-show period with trying to get a uh, adherent sustainable approach. And I, I mean, I, we all know the, the struggles of contest prep and going into the post-show period for a lot of people, it's, it's a lot harder. And so I wanted to talk today on just how do we manage these clients and transition them from a, if it is a very strict regimented prep into something that is more sustainable in the off season, especially around the, the females. And if there truly is a difference um, between males and females psychologically in the approach that we should be taking. So if maybe we, it should probably maybe set the kind of the, the framework of entering into this post-show period, what is the problematic situation we're, we're at before going post-contest or who wants to take that away? Wants to go first. <laughs> Can I talk a bit about some of the, the physiological differences that might yes. underpin some of the psychological differences? Not all of them. Nerd away, sir. Awesome. So, you know, ultimately, um, a, a kind of a newer concept that's entered into the more physiologically focused diet research stuff is energy availability. You know, typically you get these interesting uh, pockets of research focused on one specific aspect, which is just the nature of reductionist science. And once these spokes on the wheel start getting connected, we have some really cool, you know, findings. So, for example, there's been some recent uh, reviews that have said, hey, what's the link between um, low energy availability and overtraining? Uh, what's the link between adaptive reductions in energy expenditure, quote unquote, metabolic adaptation, as well as the constrained energy model that people have probably heard from Herman Pons or the idea of like, you can ramp up cardio or physical activity, but it might not have a linear one-to-one increase in total daily energy expenditure. And these are historically in science, and I promise I won't be too verbose on all this, um, different 
completely different areas of research that are kind of broadly under the umbrella of adaptations to uh, low energy availability, weight loss, et cetera, weight regain. And now that they're starting to get connected, I, I think it's really kind of cool and it helps us understand what's going on. So we often think of kind of metabolic adaptation in a vacuum where it's like you diet, if you do it wrong or you do it too hard or you lose too much, bad things happen. Metabolic adaptation is magic and you burn less calories, right? Um, but the question of how do we burn less calories? What does that feel like? Why is now what's kind of getting connected? So obviously if there's less energy expenditure, there has to be down regulation of stuff. Um, and we have to figure out well, what, at what point does this down regulation occur? What is the driving mechanism and how does that impact the competitor and the context we're in? So energy availability is a really useful construct that says not just are you in a surplus or a deficit, but what is your energy intake relative to your fat-free mass, which is more metabolically active, includes your organs, and how does that relate to how active you are? So you can actually do a mathematical calculation, which I won't get into, which is just energy intake minus your activity expenditure relative to fat-free mass. And what we've seen is that in men and women, at least based on some limited data we have, there are different thresholds. Now, first, the thresholds are individual. So I'm not just going to give you a number that you should try to stay above. I didn't give you the calculation, so that's pointless. But men seem to have adaptive reductions, you know, metabolic adaptation, which results in effects on their physiology at a lower energy intake or a, a lower energy availability than women. So women will start to see uh, menstrual cycle disruption and other changes associated with quote unquote metabolic adaptation and low energy availability at a higher energy intake relative to their fat-free mass and activity than men who could perhaps cut a little harder. And I'm not an anthropologist, um, so I, I don't know if this is true, but I kind of put on my evolutionary biology hat. I have a lot of hats sitting around my office. Most of them are BS. But I, it makes sense that historically, the people who are hunting and gathering do not have to actually provide for another life directly with their own body um, might be able to sustain lower energies while they're out there trying to hunt or something like that. So maybe these are the echoes of our ancestors. But the point being is that if you crash diet a man and if you crash diet a woman, generally you're going to see worse and earlier effects with the woman than the man. Um, the upside of this is that you don't really have a way of knowing some of these effects in a male except for their subjective experience, or if you actually say got their hormone levels measured. But in a woman who is, let's say, you know, not taking oral contraception, they're not having a regular pill bleed. If they are just having their natural cycle, you can see that disruption and it almost acts as kind of like an early warning system. So once you start to see in a regular menstrual cycle, a complete cessation of menorrhea, then you know, like, you know, they're probably in a state of taking in too low of energy. And that might tell you to extend the prep, prolong it, et cetera. But all of those things also happen in concert with the psychological changes of I'm experiencing this body, which is, you know, trying to conserve energy and shutting off half its processes in that process, which feels terrible for those who don't know. So anyway, that's kind of the intro piece I'd want to put out there is it really has to do with your relative energy intake to your lean body mass and the body processes you have specific to your sex and your energy output. And that there are differences between men and women at which point shit starts to get messed up to put it scientifically. You really rounded that out with a scientific ending. I mean, Absolutely. That's the way I do it. <laughs> you got to you gotta bring it back to the uh, kind of some bro terms. So it's all, it's mm -hmm. all appreciated. That's right. Um, it, 
it is it is interesting and I, could, I definitely understandable for those gender differences that the female is going to run into these potentially different of course if you're already a naturally lean individual you probably would go a little bit longer maybe not meet some people still have a normal menstrual cycle all the way through a prep but it seems a little bit more rare in in, in instance um you know there's strategies to try to prevent that but at the end of the day like kind of what you're saying here eric is like what you're in the state of low energy availability your contest lean um once you're there there's probably still going to be the same situation present no no matter what strategies we try to utilize you're still going to get down to that state of of energy availability so if, i mean then there, there might be some ways to mitigate that but for the most part you're still going to be there and unless you have come across some other other things that but that's kind of the situation right that's you, you're hey, not wrong john um we're here like yes your your menstrual cycle starting to get irregular but we're still going to continue this prep and that's kind of the reality and 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 along with that there's a lot of psychological issues occurring that make it hard to go into that post show period so um it may, maybe lauren you want to start addressing well, like we're at that we're in this low energy availability state we're food well, driven. Say, we have low hormones and and we're going to move now into post-show what what does this client assessment first look like um before we even start planning like do this diet or do this like what, what are we really assessing client-wise in that situation well before we even got there i do i do want to touch on before you prep is yeah. incredibly important right i think that a lot of times people just think I'm going to prep. I'm going to diet really hard. I'm going to do this cardio. I'm going to take these supplements. I'm going to dial it in. And they haven't really brought themselves up to a hundred percent to start, right? They may be kind of fucked off in their off season. They maybe were trying to do little mini cuts here and there. They maybe had a poor relationship with food. So they're starting at maybe 70, 75%. And you're going to be hit with these physiological adaptations, like they're just outlined, but also these psychological adaptations as you know, with food and just as your body fat changes and all that. So if we're not starting at the right place, I always tell people like afterwards is going to be, it's going to be hard no matter what, but it's going to be so much worse. Like if we started at hundred percent and now we only got down to maybe 60 or 70%, if we start at 70%, we're getting down to like 30 and the twenties, right? Like just hypothetical numbers, but you're going to be really, really down here. And that's when we see those, those rebounds. So first I would say previous to even prep, getting all of this incredibly important. And it's really the missed step, I think, um, because people just want to jump into a diet, especially when we are talking about females, um, especially when we're talking about bikini, because there is a lot lower of a barrier to entry from a muscularity perspective than let's say a male bodybuilder, right? So I think there are inherent differences, not just from a hormonal level um, and a muscle mass level, but just from what we're looking at as far as the divisions go, you know, if you look at even the top bikini athletes, this is not taking anything away from them, but it's saying that there's a vast difference between a bikini Olympian versus a, uh, you know, bodybuilder, a male bodybuilding Olympian, right? Like there's just no comparison. So I think that a lot of times, especially when we're talking about the local level and even not even just the local level, but even at the national level, you know, somebody who looks pretty good, you know, they're just, yeah, yeah my off season was whatever I, you know, I gained some weight. I got, I got pretty fat, you know, right. Oh, I just ate whatever I wanted for a few months. Let me just diet again. 
and I say this because I did that too. You know, it's not like I'm just saying this because I see, I see it with clients. I see it with, I saw it with myself and because you think, oh, I'll just diet and I'll get here. So I think setting up first and foremost, that is number one. Um, and number two, understanding, and we have to have a really realistic idea of what we're doing afterwards. And I think that this, you know, it's kind of hard to set goals. It's hard to set the next goal when you're, you're so dialed into the show, right? Because, you know, you need a hundred percent focus on that show, but there has to be some kind of reality. Sorry. I don't, I don't mean, I didn't want to, I mean, I am interrupting you, but I didn't, I'm sorry. I'm doing so. But on that point, number one, I wanted, I wanted to, yeah. to bring up, like, you're looking at someone like a client. Cause we had that people just come, Hey, I'm ready to prep. Like, are you ready to prep question mark? Um, <laughs> and you're saying like, Hey, you need these person at a hundred percent. So are, are there like, a few like red flags that you're looking at for these things that need to be a hundred percent. Like, is it the menstrual cycle irregularity that didn't never even return back from the previous prep that say, Hey, maybe they're probably still in this low energy availability adapted state. Um, is it still like they're still food focused or unable to stay somewhat regimented? Um, what are kind of le- these like red flag markers that you're seeing and how long, or I know I don't want to give a time frame, but, um, you want to get these back to that, to that mark before prep starts, but, but what are, what are those, just some examples of those? So one, if we're just talking about diet, consistency is number one, right? Are you able to actually hit something consistently, but are you also able to be flexible? So mm-hmm. if somebody is coming to me and saying, yeah, yes, you know, during the week, I'm really, I'm really on point. And then on the weekends, I just lose control and I just eat whatever, but it's okay. Cause my off season, it kind of balances out. Right. And you're like, no, this is exactly what we're trying to avoid, right? Um, having structured untracked days is very different than I ate whatever I wanted for the weekend. Very, very different. So one, I need to make sure that somebody's eating consistently um, and not just saying, yeah, some days it's 1400 calories, some days it's 3000. That's not a good place to start prep. And I've actually found, and this is all anecdotal, um, but when it comes to cycle irregularities, like you guys touched on a little bit, body fat is a huge mediator, right? Just like natural genetic body fat. There are some people who are just naturally lean. They don't really see issues. I I have clients who have prepped, who've never lost a cycle. And I've had lifestyle clients who are still what we would maybe consider need to lose some weight. And they might lose their cycle because we're kind of pushing away from that settling point that they've been used to for so long. Um, So sometimes there is a genetic component here. But what I also find um, is that when there is a lot of diet inconsistency, right, when there are low days coupled by these high days or these binges, the body is still not in a, in a relative state of consistency and like happiness, right? Like it's, it's very, uh, it just feels very chaotic to your body and that there's no, that's not a scientific way of saying it. Um, but what I see is that these clients, even if they've gained all of their body fat plus more after a show, they still don't have their cycle. Um, and it's very, so one, we need to make sure that, okay, is your cycle back in a regular way? Um, you know, what are we doing to address this? How is your relationship with food? How are your just calories in general? How is your training been? You know, a lot of, again, if we're talking about females here, a lot of females do not have enough muscle mass to be competitive for their division. So a red flag is when somebody's coming to me and they're having all these things like, yeah, you know, I just want to get back on stage. I just want to get lean again. I just want to diet again. I'm just, I hate my body right now. I'm this and that. And they're like, I, I know if I just get leaner, I'll do better. And you're like, well, I saw your pictures or I coached you before. And that's not the reality. You know what I mean? Like you're looking at this person and you're thinking that they're lean they're leaner than you and have more muscle. So there just has to be a lot of realistic things. And a lot of times, even a first time competitor, right? Somebody will come to me and say, I want to do this show. Like, okay, so you've never done a show before. They're like, no, I'm like, all right. So just think about, we're going to reverse engineer like a year, like a year. I'm like, yeah, we need probably conservatively six months beforehand together and six months to prep 
this could be shorter, but I'm not going to promise you a shorter timeline and say that I'm going to get you on stage in 12 weeks. Like that is setting you up for disaster. And a lot of times those people don't call back, <laughs> but I, you know, honestly, I th- like there's just so many people in this industry who are doing that. And then what ends up happening is now I see them four years later when they've gone through this cycle four times and they're like, I can't do this anymore. It's like, all right. So can I throw, can I, be your, can I be your end note real quick? Yeah. Lauren? Cause you were saying some of this stuff is anecdotal, but there's actually some interesting evidence that suggests it's not about just whether you're putting fat back on or whether you're eating in a surplus, but how you do that. Yes. So there's some cool stuff that was published in the nineties, uh, two studies to contrast one by Olson and one by Luke's. And they were looking specifically at harsh dieting and then refeeding to look at menstrual cycle return. So they often look at uh, luteinizing hormone pulsatility, which is a pulsatile uh, hormonal response in the body that once, once that pulsatility gets dysregulated, you're, you're on the way towards uh, amenorrhea or dysregulated uh, menstrual cycles. So anyway, these two studies, they used very different protocols, but the total energy overfeeding and underfeeding were actually quite similar. So one they had them uh, go on a dietary period, either fasting for three days in one or a big deficit for, for a longer period than the other. So those, those deficits both achieved this disrupted LH pulsatility, but the refeeding period in one study was a massive overfeeding day. We're talking, given someone Lauren's size, uh, you're Jack, don't get me wrong, but just as an overall human size, you know, uh, like, like 4,500 calories, right? Versus the other group eating at maintenance for three days. And in the, 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 the women who just had that one large, massive overfeeding day, it didn't restore LH pulsatility while the group that was eating in maintenance or predicted maintenance for three days did. And this also goes hand in hand with the, a case study that we saw on a female figure competitor, a natural one who went through, I, I want to say like a six month prep and a six month recovery period. And they had some regular check-ins afterwards. And they specifically noted that the way she uh, quote unquote, like recovered from the, the, the prep sounds like a reverse diet. She said she was very careful. She only put on like 1.2 kilos, which is like three or four pounds after the show in the first month or so and carefully implemented calorie increases. And they noted it was lower than the calorie increases typically observed in most of the case studies we have. And she didn't get her menstrual cycle back for 71 weeks. Yeah, it was like 18, not 18 months. Right? Yeah, it's a year and a half, man. It was nuts. So just, just for anyone who's interested, it's open access. You can read the, uh, the full paper. It's by Halliday and colleagues. came out in 2016. And I know what happens because if, like, if you look at the weight gain, the weight gain was actually there. Eventually, she did gain a significant amount of weight. Body fat went up. But when you gain weight that slow after being that lean, we know what actually happens as coaches. It's six days of like 1,800 calories, one day of 4,000. It's basically repeating what we saw. So it's like, it's enough to be in a surplus, but it's really this constant state of being in low energy availability. So it's this more or less semi-controlled bulimia, if, we're, if, we're, if you really want to be honest, and not actually making yourself vomit, but over dieting, cracking. And then this off season is really just this constant dieting state. And then they come to Lauren and they go, hey, I'd like to do another prep. You know, like I'm on 10 kilos over stage weight or five kilos over stage weight, you know, 11, 15 pounds, like, oh, that's a great place to start, but you are actually still beat up physiologically. Your body is still responding as if you're in a semi-starved state constantly. Um, and yeah, so, so this stuff, it, it, you can find little bits of this to connect the dots in the literature and it really does match your anecdotal experiences. 
And just, just to add one little piece on this, Eric, you may know the study, but I know there, well, I guess two pieces of this. Um, there is one in a, a case study in a male competitor where they do follow him like pre and post as well. That does show a rather cool comparison of like how fast he actually does rebound from the prep. Um, but one other that I wanted to add on there is finding, um, just because within the female realm of something to consider is like having kids, right? That's one mm. of the things that um, needs to be brought up. And we know that um, perpetually competing pretty much the more we're down regulating that menstrual cycle, the lower the odds of being able to get pregnant are pretty much over time. And one of the ones that I do come across is experienced competitors coming back from being pregnant, wanting to jump into a prep. Um, and that is one that can be pretty hairy um, just because like, obviously things have not been, even if they've been training and kind of eating well, like that's not a spot to prep from. Um, I've actually had a couple of friends do it this past year where it's like, literally like one most one month post pregnant or post having birth they were like getting into the prep process right so watching out for those kinds of things as well because like as lauren pointed out there is a large setup period in which the habits and in the, and the things that we're doing within a contest prep need to be present within an off season just maybe not to the extent of the amount of things that we're doing um and then especially if we're starting to get into like HPA adaptations that had to be covered with HRT and things like that. Like there's a lot of considerations, variables to juggle when we, when we have that in, in play. It's going to be really hard to develop any really great quality habits for a contest prep if you haven't done that before. And I think a lot of people take that traditional like black and white mindset of like, I'm going to set this hard goal. I'm going to do it because now I have to get on stage. And it's like, Bodybuilding to be competitive is very different than saying I'm going to do a certain cut for this event. And it's not to say that that cut isn't as important, you know what I mean? But it's also just, we have these, like we kind of romanticize, I think what it could be, right? Like I'm going to be this person when I set this goal and then you get there and then you realize like, oh shit, that was like, like a really easy day that I thought about that. And I was really fed up with myself, but now it's Tuesday and I'm like balls deep into work and I'm really hungry and I don't have any food prepped and I haven't fucking done my cardio. Like we romanticize all these things that we're going to do. And it's like, if we had just set this up beforehand, this would be a lot easier because now these actually are habitual for you. And the clients that I've had do that. And I've, you know, I've learned, obviously made a lot of mistakes over my coaching career. And that was one of them, not putting this huge, not that I didn't put an emphasis on it, but now we put such an emphasis on it. And I will not work with someone unless it's an old client who I know has been taking care of things in an off season. I will not work with someone before if they don't work with me before prep. It doesn't necessarily need to be six months. Like I'm saying for that, that new person, but even just a few months, like just getting like check-ins going, like just getting used to like the tone somebody has and like building that relationship, like contest prep is really hard. Um, you know, even if you're just doing it for fun, which I think a lot of us might say, Hey, maybe let's pick another goal. Um, I don't know what everybody's opinions are on that, but I would have a different opinion. Let's do a photo shoot. Like let's get five or 10 pounds in stage weight like and you can look bang and hot and we can do all the cool stuff but like we don't need to get on we don't need to do this um but i think that it's just really important to have these conversations with people about what it's going to take before and then also being realistic to kind of loop back to what this whole podcast is about is afterwards what we're going to experience after um so one of the most important things i think after is being realistic with what are what is our goal afterwards? Are we finishing the show? Like this was one and done. We did one show. You either didn't like it or 
you know, this was kind of just something that I wanted to try. I had this competitive goal. Um, it, are you somebody who is now qualified for a national show? You want to turn pro? Um, do we have a time frame on this? Like, are you saying, hey, I'm going to go back to school in the next year, or I'm going to get pregnant in the next two years. Like I want to bang all these shows out, right? Like, you have to understand where the client is, how competitive they are. Um, and Hey, did you get on stage and like, you look the part or like, we have a lot of work to do. So I think that setting up that post-show period is important to have those conversations as well. And like I said, it's kind of hard to do it. Like when we're so focused on the show, because we want to have our focus hundred percent on that, but we need to kind of start having those conversations a little bit like, Hey, afterwards, you know, let's do this and, you know, try to have, you know, a phone call with that client, you know, maybe not that exact day, but Hey, you know, enjoy your weekend. And then we'll talk about this on Monday and, you know, really get that plan going because what I'm sure you guys see a lot of still, which is out of it just blows my mind this is still a thing people are like yeah I did a show and then like I haven't like haven't talked to my coach since and you're like what, what, do, you, what do you mean you haven't talked to them since like how this is the most important time you know like it's just it it's so strange so like having that set up like kind of right after and those goals can change but knowing what direction we're going is really important because hey are we you know did you qualify for a national show and we're going to try to hit this pro card and you have all the muscle mass that you need we're maybe going to have a tighter off season because we're going to prep a little bit sooner that makes sense. Or you're like, you know what, I'm going to take two years off and I want to restore my hormones and I want to do totally different off season. So having that conversation, I think right away, um, which it can change, but having that is, is what is going to set up that post period. Sure. I think a lot of what you're saying, Lauren, and a takeaway here is that for one, from a, a coaching aspect, there is, is a lot to put onto your plate as far as making sure you're taking that person on in the right situation and making sure you're able to give the right education and communication along that journey. Uh, and this, this isn't just for the new competitor, it's even the experienced competitor. They're just stuck in that mouse wheel of competing and haven't done it any other way. But leading into that contest, you need, you're going to have close communication with your client, but you need to be building in the education level what's to come after. And I think once they already kind of plant that seed in the mind, it, it helps with that transition and already starting to build a plan. Because I, I, I used to coach people and they would do their shows and be like, all right, we'll get to plan to you, you know, Tuesday, you see them Tuesday. It's like, oh no, I should have had this to you way before. So you know, <laughs> advancements have come. And so a lot of times yeah. we're, we're having these conversations the plans are already in place. So they know what to do right after the show and kind of know what to expect, know what type of feelings are, are going to be happening. And I think even with the advanced people, like what you're experiencing, they think has been just a norm and that's the way it is. And, and they haven't been, now they don't know to even express it otherwise until we bring up these conversations. And so you can't make assumptions even with high level competitors. Um, so I think setting a lot of that up before they even get to night of post-show is very helpful for the next days, weeks to be successful in that post-contest period. Mm -hmm. And I think too, and then Eric, I'm sure you want to say something, so I'll stop talking. You guys want um, to say something. You can just assume that. <laughs> <laughs> while, while I'm on this train of thought, um, I think that also expressing to the client and being realistic about how hard this part's going to be because most people are really fired up for the show. You know, it's, it's rare that you get a client who's like, Oh, I really don't want to do this. I mean, they might be doing that before peak week, but once they get there, like everybody's jazzed up. Right. 
But then afterwards, it literally hits you like a ton of bricks. I mean, we have like this huge high from the show and I don't care who it is. I don't care how emotionally regulated you are. There is going to be a subsequent low after that high. Um, and obviously some people have a small dip and some people have like a total bottoming out. And that's going to be sometimes it's personality. Sometimes that's what's going on in their life, et cetera, et cetera, their expectations. But I think that prepping people to have the expectation that, hey, this part's actually going to be pretty challenging. Um, I, and I think that some people would say that that would you know, scare people away, but I think that that is really important to say, no, like you thought you were hungry before, you're going to be hungrier now. Not that anything physiologically is different, but you don't have the show in front of you um, and you don't have all these things to regulate. So I think that having the proper strategies, which, you know, everybody can thank Eric for this, like talking so much about, you know, recovery dieting and like really pushing all of this instead of that really, really stringent reverse that I think became super popular that, I mean, I failed miserably on that every time my clients were failing miserably. And I was like, there has to be a different way. Um, and so honestly, right out the gate now, I'm like the first month, just think about this. You've done a prep and everybody like that, you know, or, you know, even you and like your spouse, whatever, you want to go out to eat. You want to go do stuff. Like that's the month that everybody wants to do something. So the fact that you're going to be like, just add 10 carbs, like nobody wants to handle that. Right. Yeah. So to already build that into the plan, like, Hey, we're going to like, I want you to have two dinners out this week. People are like, Whoa, first week after a show. And I'm like, yes. And here's why, because you're going to go do that most likely anyway. <laughs> but now that I'm telling you that this is built into the plan, we're setting this as the expectation. It's no longer this like secret binge and like, Oh man, am I allowed to have this? And then either the client doesn't eat anything, which could happen. And then they come home and then they, they binge, or they're just like, you know what? I'm somebody asked me to go out to eat. And I know I have this plan, but I don't care. We're already building that in. So now they're able to actually handle and navigate their lives because especially that first month, like that first month is when everything is happening. Um, so that's one of the important things too, with like the, you know, obviously there's more nitty gritty details of as far as a recovery diet goes, um, but setting those expectations of what this can look like um, and really thinking from a client perspective, okay, what's going to be happening in that first month. I, I really want to hit on this week one, because I think there's yeah. a lot to coaching that needs to, to be addressed as far as like, just what you said, like we have clients we can give an untracked meal to, and for a certain individual, it, they can have their complete own ability to regulate it. No issue. They can go back to a plan, which hopefully now maybe it's, maybe it's starting to be macro plan. Maybe it is still, you know, a stricter approach. Um, but there's other individuals that would set them off into that binge. Yeah. So one would be, how do we handle that situation? Yeah. The other situation is, is that one, someone that is so overly strict that they will only follow the plan and won't build any, any flexibility. And then how do you handle, I guess that extreme? Yeah. You just feed them a bunch more food and you kind of, you know, would, would solve the issue. But I think the number one would be the red flag of, of the, the binge restrict eater mm -hmm. that week one. And how do we adjust the plan around that from there? Do you want me to go, Eric? Do you want to go? Sorry. Ready go for it. Okay. So first, I think this goes back to what we're doing before prep, right? I would never tell a client who hadn't had an untracked meal before prep to do that after, right? That would be setting them up for a huge disaster. So part of what we're doing beforehand to build up this relationship with food and to be able to self-regulate is to have all that beforehand, right? Um, and it might for the client be one or two untracked meals. It might be three untracked days that they're having, right? And that's all going to be put in place beforehand. 
And I understand that no matter how great their prep was, things are going to be a little bit dysregulated at the end. But what I've just found in my coaching experience is that regardless of if you plan it or not, it's probably going to happen. So if I know somebody has these potential binging um, patterns, right, which is super common after a show, not necessarily like BED, but just having binging tendencies after a show, very, very normal. Um, I might give that person a little bit more direction. It's not just like, yeah, yeah, just go do it every month that day. It's very specific. Okay, we're gonna have, we're gonna track this before. You know, I want you to have three meals before. I want you to hit these targets. When you go out to eat, then we're gonna try to roughly have this. Um, and that is still giving them that flexibility that they need, but it's also giving them that structure um, so that it's not just like a free-for-all. I find that having it for dinner and tracking beforehand is really, really useful, um, especially, and obviously at some point they can get to track untracking the whole day, but that's certainly not the first week. Um, but what I've just found is that most people are going to go do that anyway. Yeah. So it's like, if we build this in and we give them enough restraint beforehand and we build it in, there's now no longer this, like this expectation that's not met of like, oh, I didn't follow the plan. And once I don't follow the plan, then I got to go balls out and eat whatever. And that is what we're trying to avoid. I tell everybody, most important thing we're trying to do this month, especially this first week is not to have any overeating episodes. I, I understand that we're probably going to go a little bit off track. You might eat a little bit more, but that is very different than lots of binges. And that is the number one thing that I want to avoid. So calories are going to go high, higher, like a large jump might not even change over that month, but that first jump want to bring it pretty high and then give that structure, but have that untracked element. And I find that I find there's no, it's always messy. Off season's always messy. Like the first month is always a little messy, but I find that that helps mediate some of that better, um, at least in my experience, but you have to have all that set up first, right? Like somebody who's been on a, on a meal plan for a year, who's never done an untracked meal. It's not just, yeah, just go out and eat whatever you like. That's not, (laughs) but but again that's what we're trying to do beforehand so that we're setting them up so that that doesn't happen right right now no completely makes sense like what you do before prep is is going to be the great habits to carry through and i think having having that structure and i've done it too like with with these clients where i know hey you're going to have an untracked meal well at least like hey where are you going why don't we pick out what we're going to have before and then also we're not hoarding food at home to where you go back home and you don't have those options available too yeah, going uh, out to eat's a big like i say go out because <laughs> uh, that, that everything back home, home. <laughs> um it's tough and, and then i guess there's there's the other person too that they have the plan but they have constant snacks at home and so it's never like a binge, but there's always this over excess of calories. And it's, you know, do you just adjust, hey, let's just move your calorie intake up so you have wins every day and it's higher, but that's what you require. But how would you manage that type of client that's not necessarily a binger, but just is getting in the extra stuff on the daily on that first week? Okay, you go, Eric. I've been talking a lot. You can go. I'm happy to. Yeah. So there's a general thing that I have found because we also, um, as 3DMJ, we tried to implement, I wouldn't say like the crazy, like just here's 10 grams of carbs each week, but some pretty strict reverse dieting approaches, like hundred calories a week kind of thing, you know, like after a small jump initially, and then drop a cardio session, kind of alternating. We probably had like a 95% failure rate, uh, with, and, 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 and honestly it was, emotionally more damaging than any kind of like, oh, we slowed down your, your, you like we, we made the next prep harder or anything like that, because it's like your coach says, here's the plan. 
and you get to fail. And then the coach has to flounder and figure out, okay, well now, now what do I do? And I don't want to make you feel worse. Or, or maybe I think this is the way it's supposed to be. And all the other coaches are clearly talking about reverse dieting. They're doing it right. Am I a shitty coach? And so it was a mess in say like 2013. Um, and when we started to really kind of emphasize recovery, which is the reason why we call it the recovery diet, um, kind of like a really simplified truth of it is I found that putting someone in a 100 calorie surplus versus a 1000 calorie surplus, the 100 calorie surplus is more likely to turn into a 3000 calorie surplus than the 1000. Yeah. That's essentially what we're talking about here. But I think Lauren gave some really good insight into it's not just give them larger numbers you know, it's it, it, it like how you implement it. And like you were talking about, John, the, the personality and the experience of the person going into it and what their specific uh, tendencies are and the cognitions that are associated with them are really important because uh, it changes how you actually structure things. So I think kind of an overarching thing that I really think is important is that we look at the whole prep as a timeline from, say, three months out of starting prep and then probably three months out from ending it. And then in through the whole recovery period, there's something you as the coach needs to do. Because like you guys were discussing, uh, clients, typically competitive clients, they have blinders on. And it lasts from the current moment until the moment they get on stage. And there's nothing in their mind besides that, unless they're a pretty experienced competitor. And the typical meme of the coach who's like, you got to stay focused. That's the exact opposite of our job. Like our clients, competitive bodybuilders are focused. They're over-focused, right? It's our job to actually remind them there's stuff outside of their blinders. Like you can keep your blinders on, but I'm going to keep calling attention to the things outside of it that we need to talk about. So, you know, three months before the show starts, we're going to talk about the show timeline, what your long-term goals are, all the stuff that Lauren already talked about. I'm not going to rehash that. I'm going to make sure that you actually have the habits, the cognitions, and the physical health in place for you to start a contest prep and have enough time to get there with the reasonable diet that won't make it any harder than the already extremely hard task that you, you set yourself up for. And then when we're say two months out from your first show, I want to actually sit down with you and have a Skype call. And we're going to talk about what is going on into these last two weeks. We're probably going to have a hardcore digging phase. Ideally we get ready early and we actually do a reverse diet going into your show and we're eating up. Um, so that, you know, you, we've got your calories as high as they can be at this really low body fat percentage. Uh, we've got cardio as low as we can. And then we're going to talk about, okay, well, we're going to do more shows. What does next season look like? You know, and that's a hard conversation to have with someone who's eight weeks out because all they're thinking about is like, I got to look amazing on stage and I want to win or, or whatever they're, they're the way they, they're, they're perceiving their contest prep. And it's the coach's job to go, yeah, that's all great. You're awesome. I love that fire, but let's, think about the career here. So I think having a conversation about what that looks like should involve a lot of question asking. Um, and you will uncover a lot of those personality differences that you were talking about, John, in that conversation. So like you can ask someone, what is the hardest part of prep? Is it just that they're hungry or is it tracking macros? Because some people, you tell them, I want you to eat 300 grams of extra carbs once we, you know, finish contest prep. And I'm just throwing random numbers out there and they'll tell you, I'm not going to track my carbs after this, you know, like, so you have to kind of find that, that point of <laughs> like that convergence point where what's the level of control that they, they can do. Cause you can like, and, and you really need to get an honest assessment of this without trying to bias them. Like you, 
of course, as a coach, you want numbers because you can actually manipulate that. And they might be like, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. But if it turns into I'm eyeballing it and I'm actually eating constantly, the numbers are useless. And they are just a point where you're kind of making the client feel like they need to lie to you. Because I can't track. I don't want to do that. But I know the coach wants to. And they have this push and pull. And that push and pull is the experience of post-contest. I don't want to be fat, but I want to eat everything. I don't want to track, but I need to track to not eat everything. Ah! You know, that, that's basically life. So as a coach, you have to help them navigate that emotional mess, think about their long-term goals, get them to kind of center themselves and, and, and realistically evaluate what do I want to do? What can I do? And then what's the best combination of variables? And it may be that you gain at a faster rate than ideal, but that's better than the alternative because that's really the only option because simply white knuckling it doesn't work for most people. Um, so I think for that really, really... Uh, kind of restrained person, it is a matter of bumping them outside of their comfort zone on their terms with what they're ready to do. So, you know, I, I've had athletes I've worked with who've never not tracked. Um, and if they express that that's a problem, then I help them move away from tracking and kind of regimented order. Like, okay, we, we've always tracked three macros. Let's just do calories and protein. And then let's just do body weight, you know, and, and just keep your same nutrition habits. Um, and then for other people who just cannot track afterwards, and maybe they're just this constant snacker, you can give them body weight goals, you know? So you can like, you know what, keep doing the snacking thing. That's okay. But let's, let's think about like, what is that resulting in? And we'll moderate it that way and kind of let them modify their lifestyle. But sometimes there's, there's not enough connection there. Um, and, it, and you may need to give them something that is not tracking, but that creates structure. So for example, I want you to eat I want you to eat in four discrete instances per day. And then that's it, you know? So there, there's a plethora of ways this could look on paper as far as what you actually implement. But you have to engage with the client and have a conversation to figure out what are the points of friction for them that will lead them towards, you know, either being too restrained, depending on personality, or really just actually turning into true binging. And, you know, the, the subsequent depression and then feeling like they spent most of their off season trying to diet off what they gained so they can then do a prep, you know, a year and a half later than they intended initially. There's something interesting that I find as well. I was actually talking to John about this is um, beforehand before we got on is building in uh, wins for the client by controlling our dialogue towards them um, and, and shifting a lot of the focus towards training performance and feeling good in the gym again and making that a hyper focus coming out of the show. Um, because everybody makes the conversation about nutrition and not binging and ruining the post-show period and all this other stuff. Um, and we had actually done an entire post-show like post general uh, episode about it being a recovery phase. And it's all about getting us to a state where we can perform in a gym um, and, and bringing that focus back to the table after it's been taken off the table for so long um, provides wins for the clients and, and their enjoyability within training. And this is actually where um, depending on the client, like if they're like the very regimented, I want logbook strict training program, um, I'll actually build in a little bit of flexibility into the training program where we're like giving some options to almost play in the gym, kind of figuring out the movements that they want to run for the first 12, 15 weeks post-show, um, and letting them do that search, but also enjoying the gym again, where they can see the performance starting to trend up over time, um, and finding those W's within that playing over into the nutritional side. Um, and so that's been a, a big one for me, especially just with managing that 
post-show transition phase because the focus, and I find this to bring it back to the conversation, like a differential between males and females, and we're all focused on image. We're bodybuilders or physique athletes, right? But there seems to be a slight lean for females to be a little bit more hyper-focused on the image um, and off-season where males are like, yeah, fuck it. I'll get a little fatter. It's fine. Um, I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> I was like, this is the <laughs> biggest difference after a show. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's like, ah, I feel good in the gym again. It's fine. I just want to turn into a hairy bear again. But females are like, are like, you know, like, I don't really want to let go of that show stage look. I know technically I need to. And so we can start to transition those thoughts into something that's actually productive, um, especially with what Eric was pointing out, goal setting before the prep's over um, and just finding the best strategy for that individual to have the goals lined out heading into that post-show phase. It's really tough because yeah, guys are like, oh, got a little fat, put on a t-shirt, like I'm good. You know, like they, they just, and now obviously there's going to be differences, right? Not every guy is like that, but in general, find that that's where people trend, right? Um, but with, you know, with, with women, it's a little bit different, you know, and I've talked about this before on different podcasts, but I think that there is something that is, so when you're prepping for a show, right? A lot of people don't understand it, right? Like, like outside bodybuilding people, they're kind of like, oh, this looks a little crazy. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're looking really skinny, but they might be giving you pushback, but no matter what people are still like, damn, like you look good. Like there's constantly like, what are you getting ready for? Like, what are you doing? Like, oh my God, those abs, even if they don't like it, even if they don't want to look like that, people are still always saying something right in a positive capacity. And you are so dialed in on one goal and you have like tunnel vision. So it feels really, really nice. Like I'm working towards this goal and I'm getting positive affirmations. And then after the show, when your body starts to change and those same people who really don't know what they're talking about, because they're not involved here. They're like, are you eating that again? are you not prepping for shows anymore? Does it like, are you working out still? <laughs> and those same people are saying these things. They don't mean it, but you're taking it very personally. And now you don't have this very like North star goal that you're pointing towards. You're like, it's kind of off season recovery. So now you feel, and of course there's all these physiological and hormonal changes that are happening. So that's why it's like, fuck, I got to stay lean. I got to diet again. I have to do all this. And that is where I think it really affects women a lot more than men. Um, and it also, I think just depends, how, you know, especially for the new competitor well not even because i think for the advanced competitor you have an image to uphold right like who are you you know especially if you're yeah, a pro like you need to walk around and look a certain way right like otherwise nobody's going to ask you you know like how many weeks out are you you know like that's a very common thing or when's your next show when people stop asking that means you don't look like a competitor anymore right like, it's, it's kind of like, nobody asks me anymore if i'm competing <laughs> so it's like one of those things that you just kind of know but I think that for a lot of women, it can be really, really challenging to let go of that just because even if people were like giving them shit about their preps, there was still all of this stuff. And I find, and this is, this is what's really sad. I find that it affects the people the most who don't have stuff going on outside of bodybuilding. So when they find bodybuilding and they cling very, very tightly to that, um, when that gets taken away because of off season, then everything starts to crumble. And that's when you see somebody jump right back into another prep. And then they're competing from February to November every year. And that's where, you know, you guys were talking about, you know, Luke saying how you're focusing on training goals. I also like to talk about other goals, right? Like let's shift the focus of the updates and I'm going to pick up a little bit more of what you're talking about, like with work, 
or with your significant other or with your family or with your personal development goals, right? And I'm gonna kind of push a little bit more there to see like, let's work on this. And like, hey, have you tried, like if somebody's sharing something that seems interesting, oh, hey, have you checked this out? Like, would you, have you ever tried this? And trying to shift the focus to other outside of just even just fitness goals, right? I find can be really, really useful because for the, the people who are most affected, typically that's, that's what has become their focus. I find that the clients who have outside of fitness jobs who do this, do the best because they have this whole different life um, and they have this whole different outlet, different friends, different everything. Um, but when somebody is either, you know, trying to be pro or they are pro or they're a personal trainer or they're a coach or whatever, and they're always in this and they don't have anything outside of that, I find that it can be really hard. So as a coach, it's like, hey, let's try to create these outside, you know, personal relationship kind of development things and other interests that you might have outside of just physically what you look like. Yeah, and that's echo uh, everything that, that Lauren just said there. 100% agree. And, and once again, to be your endnote reference citation manager, like when you look at uh, rates of disorder eating, body image issues in general population, athletes, bodybuilders, and then segregated by sex, um, like we've all signed up to be a very different body than, than society has asked of us, or maybe an extreme version of it in some cases. Um, anyone who's a physique athlete is, is, we've gone, we're going to be outside of the norm. So unsurprisingly, physique athletes have the highest rates of body image issues and, and disordered eating just as a percentage, not to say that it's causing it, but probably just because of the people. Yeah, who wouldn't you say it's because it. of who it attracts? Like you're just going to attract more neurotic individuals who are predisposed to this. Absolutely. There's personality predispositions, which go hand in hand with, uh, with being a competitor. I think that's part of it. Um, and, and those co-vary with some of the traits that are in uh, people with disordered eating and body image issues. Um, and then society also overlays on top of that because when you look at men and women physique competitors, they aren't similar numbers. They're, well, they're, they're higher numbers nonetheless in women. So I, I think, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting all of these, these, these factors being thrown at you at once. And we, we certainly have different expectations and pressures that are put on the sexes. Um, so yeah, th those things combine. I even see division differences. I, um, yeah. Everything's like telepathy right now. <laughs> I was like, yeah. just to, like, I know I feel like I bring in bikini a lot, but I mean, obviously that's my specialty. Um, but I feel like all of this affects the bikini competitor the most because this is the, when you look at a bikini competitor and you look at that body and, and we all know how extreme that is, but it's still extreme within limits, right? It's not, again, it's not Ronnie Coleman, you know, like, oh, that just happened by accident. You know, you could look at a bikini competitor, even the top Olympians, like you're like, yeah, they have a, a really great, amazing physique, but like, it looks normal, right? Like you don't, you don't look that out of place. So when somebody sees that, they're like, oh, that must've been pretty easy to get there, right? And that is not taking into consideration the client's background and their genetic predispositions and all those different things. And it really, I think can create a lot of these issues because yeah, that person might look like that. They might've had to lose 30 pounds to get on stage. So how, like, that's me, right? Like I sit 25 to 30 pounds above stage weight. Cause in order for me to look lean, I have to get really lean. So you could look at my stage fish and be like, yeah, she's pretty lean. Like, but that must've been pretty easy. Right. Cause it's nothing that extreme, but for me, there is a huge physiological and psychological toll that it takes to get there and afterwards. Um, but if I were just to listen to like what everybody was saying, like, yeah, that, that was a piece of cake, right? Like, no, 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 you, you didn't see all this other stuff, you know? So I think that it's really, it can be really tough, especially for the bikini division for a lot of reasons, but because it looks manageable and, and attainable, 
and these are all in, in big air quotes, right? I think that creates some more issues. Yeah, you get more commentary from people when, like, if you think about it, like an IFBB pro bodybuilder, male or female, the only people who would dare comment in person are other people in the physique world. Everyone else just smiles and nods because they don't understand and they think it looks weird. Uh, and then, of course, online, you get comments like you're too huge, you're gross, you know, you look like a man, all, all this stuff, which you come to expect. And you know, you signed up for that early on when you decided to, you know, try to be 100 pounds, but shredded heavier than your natural body weight or whatever. So but when you look at some of the data on um, male uh, physique division, you know, like board shorts, there's one study by, I think, Lindsay and colleagues where a quarter of the male participants in that study had a previously diagnosed eating disorder or body image issue. And that's higher than I've seen in even the, in the male bodybuilding cohorts that were studied in the 90s and early 2000s. So it could be the same kind of thing that Lauren's anecdotally observing with bikini yes. competitors is they're getting this, this kind of double whammy where, yes, I've decided to get naked in front of seven people and have them judge my body. That's my sport, quote unquote. Of course, I'm going to have some issues. <laughs> yeah, totally fine, right? But on top of that, I've also got family members going, hey, you look great on the beach and you look kind of like the, the Barbie doll or the GI Joe that we all have been taught to look like. And you're getting that, that kind of like, do you look like the stereotype in addition to you're, you're in a physique sport? So ironically, while male and female bodybuilders have the hard, harshest physiological stress because they're trying to get the leanest, um, I think because of the societal pressures that other divisions get, they, they might actually have a little worse in that post-contest period uh, on average. May I insert one little star here? Um, I want you to insert everything. <laughs> so I, I would agree with that across the majority. I think there's one case, and John, you may want to further comment on this, um, within the non-tested leagues is those girls in like figure WPD who come off post-show with extensive drug use um, and end up having to go in a direction of battling that via finding HRT practices that are going to allow them to be in a stable spot. From a psychological perspective, I've come across a lot of people who come to me in that like post-show state where they're trying to figure out how the fuck to fix whatever had happened. Um, that it's a really fragile psychological state um, because there is a lot of iterations that typically ends up needing to happen in order to find that homeostasis again. Um, so that would probably be the only caveat to that, that I would say is like, there is cases within figure WPD and obviously there's cases in every class, but, um, when we talk about extremes, like that's one of the very large extremes that I do come across fairly frequently. That, just that's a great point. The caveat to pretty much like all of my experiences is that 95% of it is with drug-free competitors. Yeah, so sure. you layer on top of that various drugs and it's going to be more. It can only further complicate it because I mean, yeah. Yeah. whether you're natural, the same physical and, and mental struggles are there. They're still with the enhanced, of course, hormone disruption just further could exacerbate that, you know? Um, in, in some cases, uh, you know, maybe you could have, you know, some hormone replacement that so you don't have as much dysregulation, but still you're in a state of low energy availability, which was Eric, which your, what's your first point is what's kind of this yep. driving factor of, of all the distress that is, is occurring. So um, just, just to kind of wrap up into some takeaways for people of where we're trying to transition them in the post-contest. And it is just kind of paint the picture of what does that 
what does that approach look like? Um, I know it's going to vary. So there's a range within this from strict to flexible, but what does that look like on the daily for someone of what would be a help? Uh, I don't want to say healthy, but uh, a sustainable approach that, that you see within your clients. And if someone's listening to this to be like, you know what, this is sticking out as red flags of where I need to make some transition my off season to, to improve this area. I mean, to go, do you want to go? I can go. Go for it. Uh, so, so first, like I said, I, I would really make sure that you're discussing with the client, what is our plan for afterwards, right? And this plan can change, but we need to understand and have that as the, the basis of, are we trying to compete for the next five years to get a pro card? Are we just going to do a few shows because you want to set a goal and you know you want to be competitive? And, and again, those are totally fine things as long as somebody knows what they're getting into, right? Very different conversations. You know, Are you not going to compete next year or do you have to compete next year because you can't the following year, right? So setting the ground rules for like, what is our tentative timeline? Like, what are we thinking is really going to shape that off season? Um, because if somebody has just competed and they qualified and they they're you know kind of ready to go and they want to have a shot at a pro card next year the reality is you're going to have to compete to get that pro card you know most people are just handed their pro card with one show so there has to be a strategy there however if somebody's planning on not competing that off season period is going to look very different right away um, so one is setting up those goals and then two getting back to baseline as soon as possible with as little binging as possible, I would say is the overarching theme that we should be focused on. And, you know, I touched on a little bit, Eric touched on it as well. There's so many different methods to how you can approach this from a dietary and a habit perspective. And I think that that's what coaching really is. If you're just saying, here's numbers, that's a macro calculator. That's not coaching. Um, now, not saying that macros and, and calorie intake isn't the basis of all of this, but how we apply it. Is somebody strictly tracking? Are we doing untracked days? Are we doing habit tracking? Are we doing body weight tracking? Are we giving them per meal, you know, suggestions? Are we like, that's going to be very different on the person, their life, their schedule, et cetera. So I think that the overarching theme though, is to try to avoid binges and getting back to baseline, whatever that looks like for that person. And third, being very honest with them. And, you know, all of us have had competitive experience. So I think that there's a huge benefit there to be like, listen, this is really bumpy. This is not going to be easy right away and laying that out so that their expectation isn't that like, I'm finishing my show. I'm going to nail this reverse and I'm going to be perfect. Um, Cause I think that that is just legitimately some, setting somebody up for failure. And that is when we're going to start to have the, the mood disturbances and the binging and all these things kind of just snowball when we're already in this really suppressed state. Um, so setting that up to be like, yeah, it's just going to be hard for the next few weeks. You know, I try to say to people, these next four to 12 weeks are going to be really challenging because after a few weeks, some people are, are honestly good to go. Other people take a lot longer and it could be longer than 12 weeks, but I just like to lay that out. So people have this idea of like, oh shit, this period is just as important. Um, so those would be my three main takeaways. I love it. And to, uh, to add some, maybe some objective outcomes that uh, in some ranges, because there's going to be a lot of individual differences here where people can shoot for. And then the way you get to these outcomes are going to be very coach, coaching and individual dependent, like we discussed for most of the podcast. I think if, if the season's over and you're not competing next year, then you have a, a relatively kind of universal recommendation that I would make of you want to see yourself within the first one to two months, get to a non-bloated five to 10% over your stage weight. I think, assuming you got in reasonably good shape on, on the front end. Um, and that can look, there's a lot of different ways to get there, but generally it's going to be like the biggest surplus you're going to have outside of the, compared to the rest of your off season. And it may be like I was talking about an a thousand calorie surplus right out the gate with cutting back, you know, cardio. 
And that's going to be the biggest tool to prevent someone eating in a 2,000 to 3,000 calorie surplus intermittently because uh, they're actually going to feel something close to semi-satisfied for a little bit, and then it'll get progressively better as they put on body fat. The goal is to, to regain lean body mass and regain body fat, both of which are associated with you know, hunger and some of the metabolic uh, adaptation that we, we observe. Um, and then after that point, that's where things start to diverge depending on your, on your goals. Like if someone is going to compete next year, I'd rather have that be closer to 5% than 10% in that first period. And then we're looking at like a steady and slow small surplus after that, and which is a challenge to do. And I think really the only people who should be competing back-to-back -back years are people who have a well-developed physique for their division and do have a shot at, like Lauren was saying, getting a pro card or getting a qualification. And they have a lot of experience under their belt. They're not just like, if you're just a phenom and you just happen to be like freak out the gate, I still think you should take it slow to develop the skills because how many awesome bodybuilding physiques have we seen that people couldn't capitalize on because they didn't have the, the mental game and the experience to do so. Burnout. It happens all the time on both sides of the fence. So I think as a coach, you really want to help someone go like, you know, we, 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 your, your, your physique will fast track you to a pro card, but if you want to have a career in this, you need to actually develop the skills of a professional, not just the physique of one. So so yeah, if they're competing the next year, then that's what that's going to look like. If they're not competing that next year, then you can have a more slightly more aggressive approach. And depending on the individual, they might be able to hang out anywhere from 15 to 20% over stage weight, uh, which is, you know, a little on the lighter or heavier side in that range, depending on the individual. Like, you know, Lauren is saying, I really don't function well unless I'm X amount of pounds over stage weight. You only learn that with experience. And I think the coach can, can help you with that um, and figure out what does your kind of approach look like? Um, do we need to get away from tracking or do we need to man, like maintain some amount of tracking? But I think someone already said the word sustainable. I think that's the key element is whatever nutritional approach you move to in the off season needs to not create stress. It needs to feel like something you can manage regularly uh, instead of kind of the old school model of we go on this highly restrictive diet and then we just go on a seafood diet. We've been a highly restrictive diet, go on a seafood diet. And we just kind of bounce back and forth uh, on a year to year basis until we get a burnout or have to have the genetics to survive that uh, meat grinder, which I think what we saw like in the eighties and nineties for the most part. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that needs to be individually fit. Um, and some of the more really, really close nut and bolt things that I often do, like what we often will do is we'll have a discussion a few weeks prior to the competition, talk about peak week, the last competition of the year, and then also talk about what are we going to do that night? And I tell them, Hey, go out, have fun. Uh, the main thing I want you to, to, to avoid is, is feeling like you're going to throw up or needing to sleep in a recliner because you can't lie down without feeling like a soft, esophageal pressure of all the food you've eaten, right? Some, some decent things are just eat what's on your plate, um, have an appetizer or a dessert, but not both, and only have one dinner. That, that's normally like, like if you can get them to, to adhere to that that night, awesome. But besides that, go wild. And then the next day have three square meals. Now we're typically on a Sunday and then let me know how it went on Monday and there's zero judgment. It's all good. If it turned into a binge fest, no big deal. Your season's over. And now we're just going to get on track. There's something that looks like, how do we get to that five to 10% weight gain over one to two months? That's typically what that initial period looks like. And then I put them in a big surplus and figure out the best way for that, not to feel stressful and have them be able to be semi-consistent with it. Uh, and then, as they get less crazy, which happens with body fat gain and, and, and muscle regain, then it can look like something that would be more quote unquote optimal for like 
the the real goal of the offseason of putting on muscle. Yeah, I think it's important, like at least to of what is going to be recovering, what's going to be that optimal feeling. And you kind of need, to, you won't know until you're you're really there. Like my my wife Renee, she's twelve weeks post show, and like three weeks ago, she's like, I feel pretty good. Do you think I'm like in my off season? I was like, Well, you kind of always been the off season, your post show, um, but now like just recently, she's like woke up. She's like, I feel really good now. I was like, and, and we had all these right, right. Object, like subjective things returning. Like, yeah, it's like you get a little bit more body fat and you just realize, yeah, I still was kind of adapted. So the thing, the, all the negative adaptations that are occurring in, in prep, we're looking for those to reverse. So usually I'm looking for like, Hey, is sleep quantity and quality back 100% to normal? You wake up feeling really rested. Do you have good energy and you don't want to lay around all day? Are you still like very food focused and planning out your cheat meal, untracked meal, like a week in advance? Or you just kind of like, eh, if I had it, I didn't, you know, you're not, you're not food focused. You have a normal return to libido function. You have great training performance. And then regarding health markers for enhanced bodybuilders, we're looking at, you know, lab work and then also menstrual cycle return. Like if we check the lists on all these items, likely you're in a, a good optimal state that's recovered and productive for off season. And so those are the things that I'm asking along the way to track in the post-show period to see what areas are improving, what areas are struggling and how we can work from a coaching aspect to try to re reduce that and help manage it. But I think everyone here agreed, excellent takeaways and points um, to help manage that period. And again, this management of the period comes way before you're even in prep. So starting out climb and setting those expectations so the client's successful and you're successful as a coach because nothing like getting getting a client to the end of prep and feeling like you're failing them. And so a lot a lot of that legwork comes way before you even want to put someone into prep. And we have to realize from coaching, we take a large responsibility in someone's life and for years to come, not just for the outcome of getting on stage. So you have to take this stuff really seriously when you are taking on these type of clients and, and maybe they won't work with you and you might not get as many clients um, but it, again, you're, you're going to be doing the right thing that you can be proud of and, uh, and have these people thank you once they've been experienced and gone through the whole process. So, um, again, thank, thank y'all very much for laying this all out. I think it's extremely helpful. Um, anything else for, if, for people reaching out to you that want more education on this topic or for your coaching, um, please plug away, uh, Lauren, if you'd like to go first. So awkward. I'm like, I'm the worst at rounding things out. So we do have a podcast. Uh, it's called the Team Local Fit Roundtable. So you guys can check that out it's on all podcast platforms. Cool. And then all the other information is on our website, teamlocalfit.com. Uh, my personal Instagram is at Lauren Conlon and our team page is at Team Local Fit. And uh, you can find all of our content related to bodybuilding at 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D. Um, and just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we work almost exclusively, not even almost exclusively, no judgment, but our experience and expertise is with the, uh, the natural side of the sport. So if that is what you need help coaching with or information, we'd be more than happy to help. We have the 3DMJ podcast with our blog. Uh, you can follow us at team 3DMJ, or you can find my more sciencey stuff as the chief science officer and, and one of the coaches at Helms 3DMJ. Um, and that's really where all the goods are. Um, and one last final thing I would say is that if you are a coach, uh, this is some pretty hairy stuff. Like we mentioned, you want to make sure that you have folks uh, who you can refer to uh, and work with. If it does fall outside of your scope of practice, my big recommendations would be a registered dietitian who has experience with physique athletes 
a uh, psychotherapist of some type. There are various modes and versions of that. Uh, who is also a uh, has experience with 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 uh, physique athletes, and if you're on the enhanced side, you probably want to have an endocrinologist on call as well. Um, and I'm sure you guys can 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 big up me on that. But know the limitations of your scope of practice and have the people uh, who can help you. Because one thing that we didn't talk about is what about the people who really just can't find a solution, or you can't find a solution with them, and they may have much deeper. Um, psychological uh, issues that, that need to be dealt with someone who has specific skills. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. That that's a, a, another thing that truly dive into and I in completely well said, Eric, you know, work within your scope and move into a multidisciplinary approach for someone that, that is needed. So I, I will give the links to all your information below. So guys, if you want to check out more from Dr. Eric Helms or Lauren Conlin, you can do so there. Thank you all again for coming on J3U Podcast. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Uh, J3U Podcast, we will talk to you next time.